119. Psalm 119. Okay, let's look to Psalm 19. We're going to read uh, verses 1 to 8 this morning. We're not going to read the whole psalm. Uh, that would take a little while uh, for some for us. So let's just read verse 1 to 8 this morning. The psalmist writes, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts, that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word now. And as we open your word and study this, these first eight verses of Psalm 119, this magnificent psalm, we pray that you would show us not only your word and the, the treasure and the majesty and the power and the worthiness of your word, but Lord, that you would show us who you are the God of the word, the God who has spoken, the God who is sure and true and righteous. Father, help us to renew our commitment to walk in accordance with your word this morning. Help us to be men and women of the word. Help us be a church of the word. Help us to live our lives and Speak words that would reflect the authority and sufficiency and the inerrancy of your scriptures. Father, we pray that you would be glorified through the word that's preached now. May you cause it to go forth, Lord, as you always do, to accomplish exactly that which you purpose to do in the lives of every hearer here. We ask that you would give us a greater love for you and your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this will be our probably our second message in Psalm and the last before next week we begin the book of Isaiah. So I was going to add and remind you that if to prepare for studying the book of Isaiah, uh, please try to read it. Okay, please try to read it. I know it's a long book, but just kind of read it. Just read the first six chapters maybe. Uh, if you have, you're kind of inspired, I'll read the first 39 chapters, maybe. <laughs> first 10. At least the first six, okay? That's, that gives you kind of a good sense of where, we go, of where Isaiah is going to lead us. Um, but just start reading it and, and start making your own observations because that's what will be in the next uh, unforeseeable future. 
All right, so, but this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 119. In our church history class that we've been studying, and I know that many of you, I trust many of you have enjoyed it because I see that you're attending it, so it's been a blessing to you. We've had the great privilege to study about the Reformers, the Reformation, just not too long, just last week. And we learned that the Reformation was really driven by a return to the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church, being the dominant church in those days, was corrupt. It had elevated the traditions of the church councils and the decrees of the Pope to be above Scripture. The gospel was corrupted by a whole system of works, righteousness, and particularly the most vile of all, the sale of indulgences for the forgiveness of sins. But God's word would not could not be suppressed among God's people. The early reformers like Wycliffe, Huss, as well as the reformers like Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin believed and they taught clearly, loudly, the authority of Scripture alone for salvation and for faith. And it was through men like these that I mentioned and others Through their teaching of the scriptures, God brought about a a reformation of the church and really a return to the gospel. And many godly men as well as women laid their lives down so that we might have the scriptures accessible in our own language. They believed that the glory of God, the growth of the church, and the gospel of Jesus Christ were advanced through God's word. The saying of the reformers was sola scriptura, scripture alone. It was the battle cry, you might say, of the reformers. And we learned from our study that in every generation, there is a battle for the scriptures. That the scriptures are attacked and threatened with being cast aside, with being neglected, ignored. And that generation of believers is called by and raised up by God to elevate and to return to the scriptures, to fight for the scriptures, to advance the scriptures to its rightful place in the, as, a, as the leading guide, as the guide and authority for life and godliness for the church. We think of the early church. They fought for the canon of the scriptures. What what, would, what belonged in the scriptures amidst all the apocryphal and pseudepigraphical, uh, pseudepigraphal works. The reformers, as we just mentioned, fought for the authority of scripture that is stood above all others, even count, count, church councils as well as church leaders like the Pope. In other and recent eras, the church has fought for the accessibility of scriptures the inerrancy of scriptures, the sufficiency of scriptures, and the clarity of scriptures. Sadly, though these battles have been fought, in every generation, we often take the word of God for granted. We forget that in the word of God, God has spoken the very words of life. He has spoken to us precious truths, For the world to hear and believe. The world wants to hear the voice of God. They turn to no other place 
but the book, the Bible. And every so often, we need, especially as a Bible church, a reminder of the preciousness of God's word. Week in and week out, you come here and we teach the word. Our, our elders and Sunday school teachers, uh, and many of you teach the word. And it's like, it's like we're in seminary, <laughs> to tell you the truth. It's like we, we see the word so, we handle it so often that we take it for granted. We kind of assume it's always there. I can always get to it. And oftentimes in the midst of our busy lives, we ignore it. We set it aside. Or we treat it casually. Uh, we, we think we're, that merely by studying the word, that that's the Christian life. But God calls us to obey the word, not just study it. Today's psalm serves this very purpose of reminding us then of the preciousness and the treasure of God's word. Psalm 119 is sort of the, I call it the Sermon on the Mount of the Psalms. It's that most famous of all the Psalms. It declares the treasures of God's word for those who would walk in his ways. Psalm 119, if we, just to give a brief overview of it, is the longest psalm in, in the Psalms. It's the longest chapter in all the Bible. 176 verses. It's composed of 22 stanzas. It's, remember, these songs were, were songs. So, you know, can you imagine a 22 stanzas song? That's a pretty long song. But I had 22 stanzas of eight verses each for a total of 176 verses. The beauty of this psalm, because it was sung, it, oftentimes many psalms were written in acrostic, acrostic form. He has no acrostics, our ABC, kind of using the alphabet to help us remember as the first letter of each line to help us remember. Well, this acrostic uses the Hebrew alphabet of 22 letters. And each, each of the eight verses of each stanza begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, beginning with the first stanza, the first eight verses, the, today's passage. All, every single line in the Hebrew begins with the first Hebrew letter, Aleph, or we might say A. And then the eighth verses of the second, second stanza will begin with the second letter. And so on, all the way to the end. From Aleph to Tau. Tau is the last, last or the, the Z, you might say, of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, this, because of the length of this psalm, it doesn't lend to easy categorization. Sometimes we try to identify. We say, this psalm is a lament psalm. It's a wisdom psalm. It's a praise psalm. It's a thanksgiving psalm. It's a, it's a messianic uh, psalm. And, but this psalm is so long that it actually kind of strat, <laughs> straddles three different categories. One could say that it's a wisdom psalm, like Psalm 1. How blessed it is. And tell us about the blessedness of a man who walks in the, in the word. It could be, it's also can be classified as a praise psalm. Even in our past, we're going to see there oftentimes the psalmist will break out into praise and thanksgiving to God for the word. But this psalm is also a lament psalm. It's interesting, a lament psalm. The psalm, like some psalms where they cry out to God. Even when we think about David when he cries out a lament for because he is, because of the weight of his sin or because of his enemies. This psalm throughout, the, the, we see the psalmist crying out to God to, to not forsake him, to remember him, to help him. He knows that the help comes from the word. It's interesting too, even as we think about the, the whole theme of this book, it's the word of God. This, the theme of this psalm is the, God's word. And what's 
kind of neat as we if you study the the psalm, we find that there are actually eight different Hebrew terms, different word, Hebrew words that are used to describe the word of God. In fact, with the, except, with the exception of three verses, one of those eight terms is found in every one of these verses within uh, the psalm. Also, what's more, unsurprisingly, in a psalm that focuses on God's word, reference to God is also made in every verse. And God himself, in usually in the personal pronoun of you or your, is found in every single verse of this psalm as well. So this psalm is not just about God's word. It's also about God, which is understandable as well. This psalm is a proclamation of the glories of the word of God and the glory, greater glory of God who gives his word to us. This psalm is written as a direct address from the psalmist to the Lord, declaring his confidence as well as commitment to the word of God. And so this morning, I just want to start in preaching through this psalm. Uh, not, I'm going to not do it in consecutive order in, or consecutive weeks. But every once in a while, I think I'll just when I need a break from Isaiah or whatever I'm preaching through, I'll just come back to the next letter, you know. Because we, every, every once in a while, we just need a reminder that of the, word, the preciousness of the word of God. So in this first stanza of the psalm, the psalmist expresses the, the blessedness of those who walk in the law of the Lord. As an outline for us today, we're going to learn th- three attributes of those who would be blessed by God's word. You want to be blessed? You want to experience the joy and the happiness and contentment and satisfaction of, that God gives? Then we'll be found through his word. And we find ourselves this morning in, this, in the psalm three, or these first eight verses of the psalm, three attributes of those who would be glad and blessed by God's word. Let's look at number one then, the first one. Number one, the joy to walk in God's word. The psalmist declares here for us the joy of living life according to God's word. That when you live by God's word, it is a joyful thing. It's a blessed thing. It's a happy thing. It's not a burden, something. Specifically, the psalmist describes the kind of people who have this joy. He writes in verse 1 and 2, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. The repeated phrase here, how blessed, in verse 1 as well as verse 2, declares for us this this idea of happiness, it comes, we, many of us are familiar with Psalm 1 and how uh, that says how blessed is a man. Here's the same thing, how blessed, how happy, how joyful. It really is a term of blessedness describes the deep-seated joy that one has in the Lord, a deep-seated delight, a satisfaction. This is not a, just a, a passing outburst of happiness, just like, yay, you know, not, not that kind of joy. But it's a settled, it's a constant kind of peace and joy. Uh, and like, you know, when you get, you cheer for your sports, you get that, yay, you know, that. But this is more that settled joy that is kind of like knowing that you have a spouse that loves you and you love her or him. And then you are together. You might not always feel, yay, but there's a joy that comes from knowing that you have a spouse that loves you and loves you and you can love in return. This kind of joy is a, is a measured recognition that life is good. That life is good. 
And life is good because you know God and you know him through his word. You've experienced God's blessing from obeying and hearing his word. And the psalm then lists for us in this first three verses six interrelated descriptions of those who are blessed. Essentially, we could describe all of them in one phrase. We would say that the ones who are blessed are those who walk in God's word. We walk in God's word. First of all, the first kind of interrelated description that we find here is that the people are blessed when their way is blameless, when their life is characterized by holiness and of sin. And the path to holiness is through the word, through walking in the law of the Lord, according to verse 1. I mentioned earlier that there are eight different term, Hebrew terms for the word of God. Here's the first one we find here in verse 1. In fact, these first eight verses, uh, we'll use six of the terms. And we'll, point, we'll try to point out each of the six to you this morning. The first word of God term that we find here is the word law. It's the, it's the Hebrew word Torah. Torah. It means basically law or instruction. It is the Lord's instructions of his will for our lives. Now we are called as the ones who are blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. The verb walk is a common word in the Old Testament. It's common, it's we find in the New Testament as well, but it refers to the daily life of the worshiper of God. It's our walk. It's how we live, where we go about. It's the path of life that we walk in this world. Do you want happiness and joy in life? Do you want that contentment, that settled satisfaction and joy and delight? Then a life of obedience to the instructions of God's word is what you need. And verse 2 repeats this idea. That people are blessed when they observe God's testimonies. This word testimonies is our second Hebrew word for the word of God. It is the Hebrew word edut. edut. It means or it signifies that basically what God testifies to is true. We, we saw it actually in Psalm 93. That all that God declares is a testimony of that which is true. Nothing God says is a lie. All that God says is true. And anyone who disagrees with him is a liar. His word is truth declared. Uh, to observe God's testimonies is to watch or to guard faithfully. We are to watch God's word. We are to protect God's word. We are to observe it. The observance of his testimonies is then, according to verse 2, a means of seeking God with all one's heart. When we observe God's word, we look upon God's word, we are able to see God himself. You know, sometimes people say, I want to see God. I want to feel God. I want to touch God. I want to smell God. Okay, not that. But, you know, you want to just be connected with God. Well, look to his word. This is the one place. Yes, you can look at creation and see him too. But the clearest demonstration of who God is is found in his word. You want to see God? Look to his word. You want happiness and joy? Seek after God through his word. Live a life that observes the testimonies of God's word. And in doing so, you seek after God, who is the source of all joy. Verse 3 further describes for us a result of walking in God's word. It's further characteristic, the description of those who walk. We find verse 3, they also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. These are people who are blessed. They are those who do no unrighteousness. They are those who walk in God's ways. 
Again, we are reminded here of that holiness is the result of walking in the word. When we walk in God's word, we obey God's word. It results in obedience. This famous saying uh, that is often mentioned, and maybe some of your Bibles might actually have it in the fly leaf of your Bible. Maybe someone told you to write it down there some one day. And that phrase is, this book, this Bible, will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Of course, it's kind of hard to write on our cell phones these days. But write in your, that physical book that you have. See, this is wisdom. This is wisdom. This is wisdom literature. We understand that, that the psalmist is not saying here that we are to live in sinless perfection. But rather, this is a pattern of our life, a sanctified pattern of life. We walk in God's ways when we walk in his word. And what we learn from this passage, these three verses, is that happiness and joy and contentment is found in holiness. And holiness from walking in God's word. If you're a young believer, you might find this hard to believe. I know as a young believer, I found it hard to believe. Holiness equals happiness. Hold on a second. I just came to Christ. And I'll tell you the truth. I miss going to all my parties. Right? I I miss getting drunk. I miss doing drugs. I miss, you know, committing fornication. I miss all the things that I once did not feel bad about doing as a sinner. Those things were fun when I was drunk and throwing up on the middle of the streets in Seattle. That was joy, putting my head in the toilet. That was joy, having people come over my house with guns while we were gambling away. That was fun. No, it wasn't real fun now that I think about it. But as an unbeliever, those were kind of thrilling things. And some of us still think, and especially we're new believers, and if you guys, or if you're just young people, you're kind of tempted to think that way. That holiness is not fun. It's not going to be joyful. It's not going to give me that peace. I'm going to find more excitement, more fun, more thrill in life. I'm going to be really satisfied as I do evil. Sadly, you are deceived to think that way. You're deceived if you think that keep continuing and seeking possessions, seeking relationships, seeking positions of, of authority and power are what leads to joy as well. You're deceived to think that the things of this world bring lasting joy. They do not. They may bring a temporal joy, yes, but they will all end, and there's never enough. Settling for sin in our lives inevitably produces heartaches. Ask any older person. Sin always leads to heartaches. But walking in God's word is the surest guarantee of happiness. It doesn't eliminate all trials in life. This is Trials are part of living in a fallen world. We understand that. But to have a settled joy and peace and, and happiness in the midst of a fallen world comes from living a life of holiness. And as we... And it is through the knowledge of God's will, as we look to his word, where we then begin to find joy in living a life of God, a life for God. We find joy in, instead of 
striving to seek things, we find joy actually in giving away things. We find joy in restoring broken relationships. We find joy instead of being served, we find joy in serving others. And best of all, we find joy in Christ, in whom we find forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life, the power to walk in holiness. These are things that bring joy for the follower of Christ. They are things that bring us peace. True. It is true. When we come from a life of sin, especially as new believers, a life of holiness seems initially boring. But think of it like learning to walk. You know, no one's born walking, right? All of us are born, you know, flopping. Well, I'll just lie there. But we don't just say, well, I think this is great. This is the best life. Well, I'm just going to lie here. We all eventually learn to walk, right? We all start moving our arms and our legs. We try to flop over, try to get, you know, tummy, little tummy time in. Babies then eventually, as babies, we learn to crawl. We are not settled. And then, but we're not satisfied with just crawling. So this is great. Oh, I can move around. But we don't, we're not all crawling around today. Who figured out that, hey, as I, as I move around, I actually can stand up. And so we stand up. And so we start now seeing a little bit further and beyond. We hold on to things. We start cruising around. You say, ooh, yeah, this is great. I, I can see things. I, I can reach things that uh, my parents left out. And then we start wobbling and walking and toddling and weebling, wobbling, and then we start walking, right? And no one ever says, you know, I'm, I want to just go back to lying down. Because walking is much better. And though we fall and we get our bumps and bruises, and though it leads us sometimes into dangerous places, we learn that walking is what God has designed us to do. We learn that walking is a better, is, and gives us a better life, despite the difficulties in learning it. So it is with God's word. It does take a while for us as newborn babes to learn to regularly read the Bible, to study the Bible, to obey the Bible even. But as we go through our bumps and bruises and our falls, yes, we eventually learn to practice the word, walk in the word regularly in our life. And I trust that as we do so, we find a better life. We find that this is better to be in God's word. We do understand the joy and the blessedness of God's protection through his word. And we do not go back to just lying there, to not walk. But we keep walking. We keep learning how to walk. What is your attitude toward walking in God's word? Do you find it joyful or blessed? Or are you at that place where you find it dull and boring? These first three verses remind us that walking in the word leads us to joy. It leads us to the blessedness and the contentment and the peace that comes from one who walks in God, who follows the instructions that God has given for this life. And the next three verses remind us of a second attitude of those who would be blessed by God's word. And that is the desire to keep God's word. The desire to keep God's word. Notice in these, these verses... 
Now, the psalmist changes from speaking of the Lord in third person to second person. He now speaks to God directly, you, your. He'll do that occasionally. From speaking about God to speaking to God. Now, this is not uncommon in the Psalms. We saw it even in Psalm 93, where thoughts of God lead directly to worship as well as prayer toward him. And the psalmist declares then, in verse 4, another truth about God's word. He says, you, and in fact, the you is emphasized. You yourself, you alone have ordained your precepts. It is God who has ordained these commands, this word that we have. Yes, it is a book that's written by men. But yes, it is God who is behind it all. He is the one who has ordained his precepts that we should keep them diligently. We find here our third word of God term. And that is the word precepts. It's our Hebrew word uh, pikud. Pikud. Pikudim. Actually, it's always found in the plural. Precepts. It's found only in the psalm, so it's a poetical word. But it has an idea of authoritative charges or orders that are binding upon a person, upon a, the recipient. So as God, the Lord's precepts, as God's word, the Lord's precepts are authoritative orders that are binding upon all of us who belong to him. Well, it's not just all of us who belong, it's binding upon all mankind. These are not optional, these precepts. Therefore, they are those commands of God that we should keep diligently. We should give our efforts. We should give our our, our exceeding energies and, and, and endeavors to obey. Sadly, many people today reject God's word. They reject God's precepts. They consider this book, this Bible, to be outdated, irrelevant for mankind. But the worship of God knows better. We should keep God's word. It is relevant. It's not outdated. But yet, even for the worship of God, though we should keep God's precepts, we sometimes don't. We don't always. And so the psalmist in verse 5 indicates this understanding. Though God has ordained his precepts that we should keep them, he says, yet, according to verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. It's, he, the psalmist goes into a prayer here. He says, oh, that my ways, my life, my walk may be established in order, may be set firm in order to keep God's statutes, God's commands. Here is a prayer of the psalmist. And if we find, actually, we find a fourth term for God's word. The Hebrew word uh, for statutes is hoke, hoke. The word conveys actually something that is uh, prescribed or, or written. Oftentimes, and it was used when they would write things on stone. And when even the Ten Commandments, if you think about it, they were written on stone. They were prescribed. And they were written on stone to indicate its permanence. That it was not a, a temporary thing, but a permanent thing. A constant word of God, a rule for and duty for us to follow. But sadly, because of man's uh, sinful nature, no one keeps God's statutes all the time. 
Passages like Ecclesiastes 7.20 remind us of this. There, Solomon writes, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. He's not even talking about unrighteous people. He's talking about righteous people. He's talking about the people of God. There's not a single Christian, you might say. You just throw that in. There's not a single Christian on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And that's truth. We may desire to obey, and God enables us to obey. We long to obey. We want to obey. But even for those of us who are followers of Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit, we, can't, we are unable to always continually do good and never sin. We sin at times. Paul would reiterate the same truth in Romans chapter 7. Yet even though we stumble as the people of God, we ought to yearn and pray to obey God's commands as the psalmist does. We don't say, well, I can't do it, so I'm just going to forget about it. It's like, you know, it's like exercising, you know. Uh, just because, you know, you, it doesn't seem to be doing what you need to do right away, you're like, oh, I'm going to stop doing it. That's, that's kind of like me sometimes. But we, keep, we ought to keep exercising because it's good for us. Same with God's commands. It brings out happiness and joy. It's good for us. This is the psalmist's prayer. In fact, he used the passive voice here of the verb established to indicate and remind us that God is one who makes us able to pray. That's why he prays to God that my ways may be established. This is to help me to walk. He just said, God, will you establish my ways? Will you help me to walk, cause me to walk in your ways? But the prayer of the psalmist continues in verse 6. He says, then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. Here we come across the fifth term for God's word, the word commandments. It's the Hebrew word mitzvah, or mitzvah, like bar mitzvah. It means commandment, the son or daughter of bath mitzvah. Uh, sometimes we, you've been to one or another, maybe. But it's the word commandment, and it conveys the authoritative order of God. Now, it is said that in the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments. The psalmist prays here that when he looks upon or regards all of God's commandments, he would not be ashamed. He would not be ashamed. You see, what we learn here, or what's implied here, is that when we disobey God's command, what normally happens to us is that we become ashamed. We become embarrassed. If it were to be known before, before God as well as before others, we would be embarrassed about it. We would be feeling shameful about it. Now, shame as an emotion is, neither, is not a sin, but rather like all emotions, it indicates to us something. It's meant to move us to do something. It usually tells us that there's something wrong with my life. There's something wrong with my life, whether it be my character or my actions, that needs changing. Now, granted, because of our fallen nature, sometimes our shame, our, our, our emotion of shame is, is messed up. It's corrupted by sin. Sometimes we're ashamed of the things that we really ought not to be ashamed of. I remember as a teen, an eighth grader, going to my eighth grade graduation, I was actually, you had to bring your, you know, when you had to bring your parents there, I was ashamed of my parents. i tell you the truth, I'm ashamed now that I'm ashamed, I was ashamed of my parents. They were wonderful folks who loved me. We get ashamed about things that we ought not to be ashamed of. 
our looks, our parents, our clothes. But then there are other things that we really ought to be ashamed of. And those are sins. God's word that declares certain things wrong, sinful, and evil. And when we feel shame because we've broken some of those commands, it should, that emotion should lead us to repentance. Sometimes it leads us to hide. That's the wrong way to respond. But shame is designed to lead us to repentance, to allow the light to shine on it, the light of God's word, so we might come to God and ask for forgiveness. Sadly, in our world, we are told uh, to not be ashamed, even to be proud of things that are shameful. And like our world, we can become desensitized to the shame of sin. So even as the psalmist prays this prayer, he's really, the, he knows and we know that the answer to not being ashamed when I look upon all God's commandments is to look further into God's word. The answer is in God's word. See, God's word shapes our conscience. It's our conscience so that when we sin, we, we feel ashamed or we might feel guilt. Is another way feeling we may have. And that shame then designed for, to lead us to repentance as well as then to greater holiness. Because we don't want to feel shame. We don't want to feel guilt. We want to walk in holiness. And the desire then to keep God's word is one that will learn and treasure then his word. We will treasure God's word. We will want to be more in God's word. We want to have it fill our, our lives because we know that in God's word, we find sanctification and holiness. In fact, a few verses later in Psalm 119, verse 11, the psalmist writes, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. How is your desire for God's word? The more you desire to keep God's word, the more you will desire to know God's word. And this leads to a life of blessing. And this, then that leads us into a third and final attribute of those who will be blessed by God's word. And that is the heart to respond to God's word. That as people who want to be blessed by God, we need to have a heart that responds to God's word rightly. The psalmist declares his response to God's word in verse 7 to 8. And he responds, first of all, with a response of praise in verse 7. He says, verse 7, I shall give thanks to you with the uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. And here in Verse 7, we find a sixth word of God term. This phrase, judgments, Hebrew word mishpat. Mishpat. And it can indicate for us the, the perfect justice, the perfect fairness of God in everything that he decrees. God is like a judge, and when he speaks, he's making judgments about things. He declares what's sin, he declares what's not sin. And But whatever he declares, whatever he decrees even, even from a, uh, from a decreeing standpoint, speaking into speaking, there is nothing in his judgments that is ever unrighteous. There's nothing of his decrees that anyone can look at and say, well, no, well, God there, he's being unfair. He's wrong when he does that. All his judgments are righteous according to the word of God. In fact, they are more than fair. When he declares that all sin must be judged by eternal death, God is perfectly fair. When he decrees that some to be saved and Therefore, some are not. God, too, is fair. When he allows the wicked in our world to prosper, the world to continue in sin, God is still fair in his judgments. 
for his most righteous judgment of all was when he declared his son guilty for our sins. Forsaking his son on the cross for the payment of our sins so that whoever believes in him, no matter how wicked we are, how much sin we've committed, we can be saved from judgment and have eternal life. And when you know this truth, and especially as we took communion this morning, it makes you want to give thanks to God, right? It ought to make you want to praise God because my sins are forgiven. And that's the response of someone who's blessed. The more we learn of the Lord and his word, the more we want to praise him. Psalm 119, 160, verse 62 says, At midnight I shall give rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. It's not just when it's convenient, you know. At midnight, he's probably thinking about the Lord. Maybe he can't sleep. Maybe something's going on. And at midnight, he gets up. He says, oh, some of you are still up at midnight, but most people are maybe asleep. And he gets up and he starts praising God, thanking him because of God's righteous judgments and ordinances. That's the response of, that's the, one of the, the right response of a worshiper of God to his word. Secondly, there's another response to God's word that we find in verse 8, and that is the response of obedience. That ultimately we are to walk in God's word. When we hear God's word, we study God's word, we learn of God's word, we are to respond not just praising God, but we learn how to respond by obedience. The psalmist writes in verse 8, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Utterly. Now early in verse 5, the psalmist prays to God to, for help to keep the Lord's statutes. Now he resolves to obey God's statutes. He will, by God's grace, do whatever it takes to obey God's commands. This is not a whim. This is not an emotional high that he is led to. But it's a sincere commitment of the heart. Example of such a commitment took place in April of 1521. We learned the story there, there in that month in the city of Worms, worms, Martin Luther stood before the imperial diet, the council. He was called to recant his writings regarding the authority of scripture over the Pope, regarding the salvation by faith alone and not by any work, especially not by indulgences where one can buy their salvation. Knowing that the answer that he gives could very well mean his death. Luther asked for in a day to think it over. And so a day he spent in prayer and thought. The next day he came before the Diet of Worms and he gave his most famous answer. He said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in church councils, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradict themselves. I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. Martin Luther committed himself the obedience of God's word, even preparing to die for these truths. 
His courage was instrumental in our understanding of the gospel today, in fact. If it were not for him and many other fellow like-minded servants, we might be buying indulgences right now. Do you have the courage to obey God's word as well? Not merely lip service. Yeah, I'm going to obey God. But a sincere, premeditated commitment to the word of God. Like the psalmist, let us be men and women, worshipers who praise him for his word and obey him as well. In lip service as well as in life. In every generation, there is a battle for the scriptures. The battle for the word of God starts here in the heart and minds of God's people. It starts in your hearts, your minds. It's not out there. It's in us. How you and I respond to God's word. For how you and I respond to God's word will impact how this word goes forth into that world. If I may so boldly ask, did the reformers die in vain? Did they die to give us the Bible in dozens of different versions, translations, formats, and yes, all platforms even? But it is nowhere to be found in our hearts or minds or lives. It doesn't matter if we reject it from outright antipathy or careless apathy. The result is the same. We forsake our blessing and we cease to be a blessing in this world. We have no power apart from Christ and his word in this world. If we do not treat the word of God in our hearts and our minds with the preciousness and and treat it as the treasure that it is. What place does the Bible have in your life? Does it guide your life? Does it inform your life? Does it manifest in your life? Do you read, live, and obey God's word? Do you walk in it? For when you do, you will know the blessed joy of walking in him, and you will be a blessing. You will know the blessing of blessing others with that very same word that God has used in your life. Let's do that. Let's make a premeditated, sincere commitment to the word of God. To live it, to obey it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we confess to you there are times that we do take your word for granted. That we treat it casually because it is in such a great abundance in our lives. We hear it weekly. And those of us in our Christian families, we, we hear it daily. We forget what a treasure we have. Oh, Lord, forgive us for settling and to go pursue off pennies and nickels when we have millions in your word. Father, we pray that you would cause us to once again appreciate the treasure that we have found in your word, the might, the, the precious and wonderful joy of, and blessedness and happiness 
that comes from walking in your word. Help us not to settle for the things of this world, but help us to keep pursuing and seeking after understanding your truths, for your truths are the words of life. Help us to and take it for our own lives, to live by it, to walk by it, to be informed by it, to be guided by it, so that we might then speak it and share it, pass it on to others who then can be blessed and know salvation in Christ and the blessed joy that's found in him. Father, we commit ourselves to this task. Help us to be obedient, Lord. We know that we, in our own strength, are weak. We are frail. We are prone to wander, Lord. We pray that you would cause our ways to be established, that we might keep your words. Father, that you would help us not to be ashamed when we look upon all your commandments. Father, that you would cause us to be men and women who walk in your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.